are awesome. If you could please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you're wondering where the gospel of Luke is, it's in your second half of the Bible. Second half of the Bible, uh, third book in the New Testament. We're looking at Luke chapter 22. Uh, while you're doing that, I know you're flipping. So could you, uh, instead of clapping, could you give a big shout to all of our volunteers this morning? Shout out to all of our volunteers, all of their hard work. Whether they're on this stage or off the stage, we appreciate you guys. You guys work so hard, and we're so thankful for you. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do this together with me. Is we're going to stand one more time, and we're going to be reading the Word of God together. Could you all stand with me? Over the past several months, actually, we've been looking at the book of Luke, and we're finishing the book of Luke in these next couple weeks. And uh, after that, i got to tell you, we're going to be doing a series on relationships that you do not want to miss. If you have issues with relationships, questions about relationships, not even necessarily romantic relationships, maybe relationships in your home or at work or at school, friendships that you have, maybe it's your marriage that you're concerned about, maybe it's your relationship with your kids or your parents, then you do not want to miss this series on relationships that's happening right after Easter. Invite your friends to it as well. But we're Finishing our look at the Luke, at the at the Gospel of Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke, verse, uh, chapter twenty-two, verses fifty-four to seventy-one. Would you help me preach in this place and read in a big, loud voice, verses fifty-four to seventy-one, as we get in the Word of God this morning? Let's read it together. It says, "Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and they sat down together." Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at, straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Before you take your seat, would you turn to your neighbors around you? Would you give them a high five and say, uh, get ready for this? Would you please take your seats as we get ready for this? Thank you so much for reading the Word of God with me this morning. Today, before I tell you the title of our message, since a rooster plays uh, an important role in the scene that we just read about, I thought today we'd start by asking you, if you were directing a film on the life of Peter or on the life of Jesus and what we just read, one of the most famous scenes from their lives, if you were the director of that film and you had to shoot the scene, which of the following birds would you choose to play the role of the rooster? Check this out with me right now.
Can we give a big hand to all those roosters right now? <laughs> that last one goes to Thrive Church, by the way. <laughs> I don't know about you. If, I don't know if you, if you were directing a film on Peter's life and you had to you know, shoot that scene. I don't know which of those roosters you would choose. I just know this. I'm you know, feeling a bit like KFC right now. I'm not sure why. Uh, but the fact is this, is, you know, for some of you here, when you see, hear the sound of roosters, you might think of food, you might think of lunch, you might think of dinner. But for Peter, the sound of a rooster reminded him of failure. And that's what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about dealing with failure. See, I'm going to put it to you today that the difference between a successful person and an unsuccessful person is not that the successful person never experiences failure and the unsuccessful person always goes through failure. But the difference is in how they view failure. The difference is in how they respond to failure. And that's what we're talking about today. See, all of us are going to experience failure in one way or another, whether it's in our relationships or in our career or in our ministry, in our health, pursuing a certain dream we may have. And the question is not if. The question is when will we experience failure. And as common, as inevitable as failure can be, most people grow up not knowing how to deal with failure. We don't go to class in high school and take a class called, you know, Failure 101. I don't know if you took something like that. In UBC, when I was there, there wasn't a faculty of failure, was there? You know, where you, oh, what are you majoring? Oh, I'm majoring in failure, right? That would be a very weird thing to say. The fact is this, is that there are few more important things to know in life than learning to get up from failure, learning to view failure, learning to handle failure, and yet we don't really formally learn about that in any kind of way. That's why today's message is called A Friend Called Failure. Could you turn your neighbor and say, a friend called failure? See, don't get me wrong. I don't call failure my friend because I love failing or because I dream of failing. And in fact, much the opposite. You know, I dream of succeeding. I dream of, you know, being excellent. I dream of doing well. But one of the things I'm learning over time is this, is that on the journey of success, failure is inevitable. And how you respond to failure is going to be crucial to whether or not you experience success, whether it's in your marriage, or it's in your business, or it's in your studies, or it's in your career, or it's when it comes to a dream that you're chasing. And so when I say embrace failure this morning, I don't mean, you know, don't misunderstand, I don't mean, oh, you get, you get an F on your exam, go, yes, I always wanted an F. Or, you know, your, your marriage falls apart and go, yeah, yes, I've always wanted to have a broken heart. Or, you know, you, you don't keep your word and, oh, yes, I, yes, I'm so glad I didn't keep my word. I'm so glad that I, I, I didn't keep my promise. Bankruptcy, yeah. You know, I'm not talking about you know, embracing failure in an absurd kind of way. But when I say that today we're doing a message called my, fri my friend called failure, it's because very often we have the wrong perspective on failure. We think of failure as the F word. We think of it as the thing you don't want to say, you don't want to think about it, you want to try to avoid it as much as we can. We fear failure, we see failure as the enemy, and today I'm going to put it to you today that one of the best ways you can deal with failure is treat failure as your friend. We're going to learn five ways today that failure can be your friend, and we're going to learn it through the story that we've read today in Luke chapter 22, where Peter denies Jesus three times. Now, you got to understand this. It's to understand how significant that moment is where Peter denies Jesus. You got to understand what happened just a little bit before 
that moment. See, earlier in Luke chapter 22, just a few verses before, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter at a dinner table. It's the most famous dinner of all time. It's called the Last Supper. It's one of the most famous scenes in the life of Jesus. Jesus is having his final meal with his 12 disciples. There he is, and he, he does something that he would not do at any other meal with them, though they had countless meals before. He'd take a, a piece of bread, and he'd break it before them and say, this is my body, which is for you. Do this remember of me. He's pointing to the fact that he would die on the cross later on for their sins. And then he takes a cup. He says, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many people's sins. He's referring to his blood that would be shed on the cross to pay for our sins as well. And in the midst of this dinner, there's a moment where Jesus turns to Simon. His, his name is Peter. His, his legal name is Simon. And he says this in verse 31 to 34. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brother. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. See, later on that night, Jesus, he takes up his disciples to the Mount of Olives where he loved to pray. He goes up to the Mount of Olives where he's pouring out his heart to God. The Bible says that blood and sweat were coming out of him because he was so anxious and so fearful and so stressed about what was going to happen to him just a few hours later. And after spending the whole night in prayer, he takes his disciples down the mountain and there at the foot of the mountain, he meets Judas, his ex-disciple and now a betrayer of him who's there with a mob of high priests and soldiers and other people who are there to apprehend Jesus. They take Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and there they start to question Jesus. Peter is watching. Peter is listening. And Peter, from a distance, begins to follow after Jesus. And while Jesus is inside the house being interrogated, Peter is outside the house in the courtyard. And he can see Jesus inside. He can even maybe even hear his voice, but he doesn't want to go in. Instead, he sees a group of people warming themselves by a fire. And so he decides to join them at the fire. And while he's warming himself by that fire, a servant girl looks at him in the eyes and recognizes him. She says, this man was with Jesus. Peter says, no, no, and, and I don't know him. And then another person identifies him as a disciple. He says, no, no, I, I've seen you before. You know, I, I was on my phone and I was on Facebook. I saw that you liked every post that Jesus wrote. You even tagged Jesus on all of your posts. You said even you comment, I, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Heart emoticon, heart emoticon, heart emoticon. You did all of that. That's you. And he says, no, 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 it's not me. An hour later, someone else says, this fella was definitely with him. Just listen to his accent. He's a Galilean. And maybe trying to change his accent, Peter says, I I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not Galilean. I am French. Or I, I'm Chinese. Or you I, I, try to change his ethnicity or change his racial background or his cultural background to, to not get caught. And, and, and just as he's doing this, Peter hears in the distance, da, 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 you're a chicken just like me. Jesus turns. He looks straight at Peter. Peter remembers the words Jesus spoke to him, that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This man, Peter, who just hours before said, Jesus, I will die for you. Jesus, I'll go to prison for you. At that moment, had disassociated himself from Jesus three times, his best friend and his teacher. And the rooster crow wakes Peter up to the worst failure of his life. And Peter goes out of that whole premises, that property, and he weeps bitterly, the scriptures say. Now, of course, many of you guys know that that's not the end of Peter's story. 
That's not the end of Jesus' story either. The next day, Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. On the third day after he's buried, he would rise again. And though on that day, Peter, I'm sure, felt like dying, the fact is Peter would, in his own way, rise again too. Is that Peter would go on to become the preeminent leader of the church, traveling all over the region, preaching about Jesus. He would establish church communities for people that have lasted to this day, leading thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ, healing the sick, helping the crippled, serving the poor. And just as Peter had said, Peter would end up going to prison for Jesus. Just as Peter had said, Peter would end up dying for Jesus. In fact, you know, church, early church fathers would say and report that Peter, when he died, he didn't feel worthy to be, to die the same way that his teacher and savior Jesus had died. And so when they crucified him, they crucified him upside down, tradition says. And, and here's the thing, is that though Peter had failed in some very big and public ways early on. Peter's life in the end, by all accounts, was a huge success. And when I think of Peter's story, one of the big lessons for me is that it goes to show that what's most important in life is not whether or not you experience failure, but it's how you respond to failure. Amen. How do you usually deal with failure? See, there's a lot of different ways people will commonly deal with failure. Let's go through a few of them right now. One is that they get angry, they blame others. They don't take responsibility for it. They just look for someone else to blame. They play the blame game. Another one is that people tend to sometimes ignore their failure, deny the failure, and as a result, repeat the failure. Oh, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. Uh, they might go through a breakup, and it's a really bad breakup, and they don't really think through, was I really making the right choices there? Was I with the right kind of person? They don't really think about it. They just kind of move on, and they end up repeating the same mistake over and over again, becoming almost like a serial dater that's just continuing, and then serial, like a serial, you know, serial marriages and all that stuff. It's because they're ignoring the failure, they're denying the failure, and they just repeat the failure over and over again. Another, another way that people respond to failure is they fear failure, is that they don't want to do anything risky. They want to, don't want to try anything new because they're afraid of failing. We often say no to new opportunities. We don't want to take any risks. We don't want to take a step of faith because we're afraid. What if I fail? What if you know, things don't turn out? And as a result, we fear failure. Another one is this, is sometimes people internalize failure is that maybe you worked really hard at something. You, put your, you poured your heart into it, but then things didn't turn out the way that you hoped. You think it was a failure, and then you start to project it onto yourself and say, I'm the failure. I'm the one who failed, and so therefore I'm the failure. I'm worthless. I'm useless, and you go down this very nasty cycle of internalizing the failure. Another thing that some people do to respond to failure is that they give up. They, you know, throw a pity party for themselves and they just say, you know what, I, I, I'm just, you know, I, I'm just going to forget this now. This is, I, I'm just not cut out for this. I'm going to give up because of the failure. You know, what's the best way to deal with failure? What's the best way to deal with failure? If, if, if there was a way to, as John Maxwell would say, fail forward, how do you do that? How do you fail forward? One thing I'm learning and one way I'm going to challenge you today is to see failure as your friend. See failure as your friend. How is failure your friend? Well, let me give you five reasons failure is your friend. Number one, I hope you write this down. Failure gives you a chance to learn and to grow. You know, if you never experienced failure, if everything was always going perfectly for you, if you never made a single mistake, you would never feel any need to grow. You would be caught up in this self-consumed, delusional bubble that everything is great. You're perfect. There's no area where you, need to where you need to improve. But failure shows us we haven't arrived yet. Failure tells us there's a dose of humility that we have to keep with ourselves. Failure is a big part of learning the importance of resilience, of hard work, of being creative. In fact, you know, many of you uh, have been to a place called Silicon Valley 
uh, some of you have worked in that place. And Silicon Valley, back in California, San Jose, that old region has become the global center for high tech, innovation, social media. Some of the biggest companies in the world, Google, Facebook, Apple, they're all based in Silicon Valley. And, and you know, there's one person who works for the Harvard Business Review who went to Silicon Valley and spent some time there just to understand, kind of study what makes Silicon Valley such a burgeoning commercial center. What, what, what is it, what is it that causes Silicon Valley and the, so many of the companies that are based there to do so well and to be so innovative and, and to, and to you know, break boundaries and to, and to, and to do extremely well financially? And, and they came up, he came up with this, he said this, he said, in Silicon Valley, as well as in other hotbeds of in, in, in innovation, failure is a badge of honor. Failure is a prerequisite for success. Failure is not something to be ashamed of. For these innovators, a successful company and a successful career requires a continuing series of rapid experiments, tests, hypotheses, and pivots, which means that nobody gets it right the first time, or the second time, or the third. As a result, failure is highly valued. In the most burgeoning commercial high-tech center in the world, failure is not something to shy away from. Failure is something that people value. Because it's saying, look, that's how we learn. That's how we grow. You can't grow and learn without experiencing failure. In weightlifting, those of you who like to go to the gym, many of you guys know that there's a type of training that you can do, which is called failure training. That's where you're taking a weight, which is you know, maybe you know, 30 to 80% of the maximum weight that you can take, and, and you're basically just continuing to repetitively lift that weight until your muscle fails, until you can't lift a single, uh, a single rep anymore. And what is that called? That's called failure training. People say, experts in bodybuilding, they say that that's how muscles maximize growth, is that they want to get to failure. We, on the other hand, sometimes we want to avoid failure as much as we can because we think failure means the end of me, when in fact failure is the beginning of you. Amen. Failure is where we learn, it's where we grow. That's the first reason why failure is your friend. Number two, failure shows us our need for God. See, if you never experience failure, if you'd never said something hurtful to someone and regretted it, if you'd never thought a bad thought before, if you've never sinned in any kind of way, then you would feel there's no need for God. You would say, you know, I can get to God on my own. I can get to heaven on my own. I don't need a savior. I don't need Jesus. I can do things by myself in my own strength. I can get there on my own merit. I can reach nirvana. I can get enlightenment. I can you know, get to paradise on my own. But the fact is that all of us have failed. All of us have sinned, the Bible says. And when we fail, one of the good things that comes out of the failure is that it shows that we need God. It's a reminder to stay humble. It's a reminder to say, you know, I need a Savior to save me from my sins. And that's why Jesus came. If you believe that, say amen. Number three, failure helps you succeed. I heard this very, very interesting experiment that a ceramics teacher in an art studio uh, tried with his class. Uh, you know, ceramics meaning you make pottery. And this is what they did. The ceramics teacher, uh, he, he divided his class in randomly into two groups, kind of like, you know, split the group into two. He said, okay, this group right here, you guys are going to have one thing that you need to do all year. You just have to make one pot as nice as you can. One clay pot, the best pot you can possibly make, just make one. Just make one. And he says to the, the other group here, he says, I want you to focus on quantity. 
I want you to make as many pots as you can. And in fact, the way you're going to get an A is not going to be based on how good the pots look. It's going to be based on weight. I'm going to ask you to see if you can make 50 pounds worth of pots by the end of the year. And you're going to get an A if you do that. You get, if you do 40 pounds, that's a B. And that's how they did it. One group was the quality group. The other group was the quantity group. And at the end of the year, all the students, they submitted their pots to the teacher. And the, the teacher found this surprising trend. Guess where all the best pots came from. They came from the quantity group. They came from the group that wasn't just focused on thinking and pontificating about the perfect pot and thinking, oh, like, what would that look like? And, and, and just kind of thinking but never doing anything. It came from the group that was doing hundreds of pots, doing one really ugly pot and then a less ugly pot. And then, oh, it's getting a bit nicer. Oh, it's getting a bit nicer. And they did hundreds of pots and they kept on failing over and over and over again. But eventually when they got to the end of the year, they were making nicer pots than the one group that was like, oh, let me just think of what a perfect pot looks like. And see, what does that show you? It shows that you can actually fail your way to success. Is that sometimes the way to, to success is by trying and trying and failing and getting up again and trying again. And see, as much as we hate failure, the fact is that failure is very often an important, crucial part of the journey of success that God made it to be on. And in fact, if you don't believe that, why don't you take a look at this video here of famous failures. Check this out right now. After being cut from his high school basketball team, he went home, locked himself in his room, and cried. He wasn't able to speak until he was almost four years old, and his teachers said he would never amount to much. Was demoted from her job as a news anchor because she wasn't fit for television. Fired from a newspaper for lacking imagination and having no original ideas. At age 11, he was cut from his team after being diagnosed with a growth hormone deficiency, which made him smaller in stature than most kids his age. At 30 years old, he was left devastated and depressed after being unceremoniously removed from the company he started. A high school dropout whose personal struggles with drugs and poverty culminated in an unsuccessful suicide attempt. A teacher told him he was too stupid to learn anything and that he should go into a field where he might succeed by virtue of his pleasant personality. Rejected by Decca Recording Studios who said, we don't like their sound, they have no future in show business. His first book was rejected by 27 publishers. His fiancée died, failed in business, had a nervous breakdown, 
and was defeated in eight elections. If you've never failed, you've never tried anything new. Wow. What a message. What's the message of that video? The message of that video is this, is that what counts most is not whether or not you experience failure, because we all will. What counts most is how you respond to failure. Amen. Amen. And uh, this video is one of my favorite reminders of it. The first person that he mentioned in this video is, him, is Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, most people consider him to be the greatest basketball player of all time. People are doing the NBA playoffs right now, and, and uh, you know, it, people will still go back, and they'll compare who's the greatest of all time. And without a doubt, almost every single person will say it was Michael Jordan. And in that video, you still notice that Michael Jordan, he was cut from his basketball team in high school. He went home and cried. Would you could you imagine if Michael Jordan decided to quit right there? and say, you know what, I, I'm afraid to fail. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to try out again. I'm not going to ba play basketball ever again. We would have missed out. The world would have missed out on watching the greatest basketball player to ever play. You know, it, the failing for Michael Jordan actually didn't stop in high school. It kept on going. Check out this quote from Michael Jordan that's been on, on the screen for a while now. You can read it. from This is him talking about his pro basketball career. He says, this is, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. And I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. It's because at the end of the day, as much as we hate failure, failing is how we grow. Failure is how we see our need for God. Failure is how we learn to be successful. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Number four, a fourth reason why failure is your friend is this. Write this down. Failure gives God room to write a greater story with your life. Failure gives God room to write a greater story with your life. You know, I've shared oh, numerous failures in my life with you guys. I, I, I try almost as a goal to share one with you every week. Uh, and, and so you are, guys are very, very aware of a lot of my failures. Uh, you know, you're, you're aware of how you know, I was fired from my very first job. Um, the first girl I ever asked out said no emphatically. Um, I applied to SFU and never heard back. I don't know why, but they just never replied. Um, and so I just thought, you know, maybe uh, for the sake of variety, uh, you know, in fact, I think six months ago, I, I talked to you guys about the fear of failure and how we, we, we shouldn't fear failure. We're, that, that, that message called Greater by Mistake was focused on failure. We talked about basketball as well in that message. And, and I, I shared with you my, my 10 of my biggest failures. I, I shared that with you, like a top 10 list. I, I've, I've got some more for you. Is that okay? Can I share some more failures with you right now? Okay. I've got about seven or eight more. Is that okay? Okay. Here you go. On a couple occasions as a kid, I was asked to perform on stage. And when I got on the stage, I blanked out and needed someone to remind me why I was there. That happened. That happened. The first time I was playing a, a piano, uh, a, a, a song on the piano at a, at a recital, I, I, I was supposed to go, and I got on the stage, I took a bow, I got to the piano, and I completely blanked out. Had no idea what I had to play. My teacher had to come up and go, is everything okay? And, and, and she, she, she hummed the tune to me, and then I started playing it. But man, uh, that was an embarrassing moment. Another time, I was supposed to do a rap for my grandfather. Not at his request, because my grandfather would never request that his grandson rap, but I thought I would rap for his birthday, and I completely forgot the words. 
completely forgot the words. I was maybe nine years old, and I completely blanked out on that stage. Another time, my first midterm in law school, uh, I failed that midterm. I got an F. I think it was the first F I'd ever seen on an exam paper before, and it floored me. I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, during my second year of law school, I shared with you a couple weeks ago how I applied to over 30 law firms for a summer job. Every single one of them turned me down. Uh, you know, another one is when, when we first started worship services here at Thrive, sometimes there'd be more people on the stage than there would be in the seats. That's when we first started. That's the way it was. You know, uh, you know uh, another, t- another time when we decided to move the church to East Richmond, you know, our attendance went down by 30%, and it was, it was, it was a move that uh, we we're like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? Another time is, uh, you know, I, I always hoped that the first girl that I officially dated, my first official girlfriend, would end up being my wife. That wasn't the case. Uh, I failed in that way as well. And let me tell you this, is when seen in isolation, any one of these situations may have seemed like a failure. But looking back, I realize now that each one of those situations was part of a bigger story that God was writing with my life. Amen? Amen. You know, with, with, there was a couple occasions as a kid when I was asked to perform on a stage and I completely blanked out. If you told me on that day that one day you're going to be on a stage every single week speaking to people, uh, I would have probably completely blanked out even more. But the fact is that that's what I do every single week now. And, and it's just one of those things where I learned from failure. You know, that first midterm exam, I, 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 I failed in law school. Praise God, that was, the last, that was also the last midterm exam I failed in law school. I learned to do things differently. I learned to write law school exams. Got pretty good grades as as a result, you know, during my second year of law school, I applied to over 30 law firms, tried to get a job, couldn't get a job. It's because God had a greater plan for my life. Amen. Uh, you know, when, when we first started worship service at Thrive, and, and sometimes there'd be more people on the stage than in the crowd, very often we'd say to ourselves, okay, you know what? The best is yet to come. Let's keep on going. Let's keep on doing as best we can. Let's trust God, and one day something will happen. You know, when uh, I, I asked that girl out to be my first official girlfriend, and she said yes, and you know, I was ecstatic on that day, but the, the, the relationship didn't work out, you know, on that, at that moment, God already knew what was going to happen, which is that later on, down the road, as I grew up, as I matured, that God would have an even better thing planned for me, and he had uh, in mind uh, a, someone who would be a perfect match for me. Her name is Pastor Charlene. Amen. Amen. And see, when seen in isolation, any one of these situations would have seemed like a failure, but it was actually just part of one bigger story that God was writing with my life. Maybe in the same way you have experienced a failure that haunts you to this day. Maybe you often tell yourself, I've failed as a parent. I've failed as a husband. I've failed as a wife. I've failed in my career. I've failed as a businessman. I've failed as a, 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 as a Christian. I've failed in whatever way that you feel like failure is haunting you today. I'm here to tell you today, God is not done with you. That God is still writing a story with your life that is greater than anything you could write for yourself. That failure is a part of the story, but it's not all the story. So hang on because the best is yet to come. Amen. In fact, with every one of those failures that I experienced, if anything, it was like those failures I experienced just planted a seed for something greater later on. That one situation might not have worked out at that moment the way that I hoped, but in that failed situation, there was an idea. There was a lesson. There was something that I learned that equipped me for success later on. And that's not just me. All throughout the Bible, you see that. That's one of the reasons I love the Bible, is that it's about stories of real people who go through real failures and somehow 
God in his power and grace redeems their lives and restores their lives and shows them that it's not how, it's not about, it's not about experiencing failure, it's about how you respond to failure. You got Moses, who was a murderer, who wanted great things for his life, wanted to lead a nation, but he did it in all the wrong ways. He failed, but then God picked him up and he showed him a different way to lead and he became one of the greatest leaders the Bible has ever seen. You got a girl like Hannah, Hannah, who always wanted to have a kid, but couldn't have kids, couldn't bear a child, couldn't do that successfully, and she felt like a failure. She would pour her heart to God, and finally, you know, one day, you know, it was just part of a bigger story that God was doing in her life to, to, to have Hannah be the mother of Samuel miraculously, and that would in many ways establish the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament. It's because Jesus, God, had a bigger plan. Amen. David, he's the king of Israel, known as the greatest king of Israel. He's known as a man after God's own heart, and yet he was also an adulterer. He was a murderer, and his, his life story is not that if, you, you know, if you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, that uh, you know, it's over. It's that if you respond to God, if you will repent, if you will turn back to God despite the greatest of sins, that God can still call you a man after his heart. God can still use your life to bless many people. You got Abraham, who's the father of faith, and yet he was known for times when he disbelieved. He he didn't believe God, and he lied as a result, and yet God used his life in a powerful way. You got Paul, who was a Christian terrorist. He would terrorize Christians, but then at the end of the day, despite all the ways that he had gone wrong, God used his life in such a powerful way to write a greater story than anything he could write. If you believe us, say amen. It's because failure is not a curse. Failure is actually a blessing. Failure gives God room to write a greater story with your life than you could write for yourself. One of my favorite verses on failure in the Bible is Proverbs 24, verse 16. Would you read it with me in a big, loud voice? One, two, three, it says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. There's another translation that says, Though the godly trip seven times, they'll get up again. But even one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. It's this idea that when you have God in your life, when you have a relationship with God, when you hang on to God, even in your toughest times, you can fall time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, but you will have the strength to get up again. You get up from failure. Whereas if you don't have God in your life, you can find that sometimes one disaster, one failure is enough to bring you down completely. And so that's why it's about giving God the room to write a greater story than we could write for ourselves. Amen. Number five. Number five, how is failure a friend? Failure gives us a chance to experience God's grace. Failure gives us a chance to experience God's grace. Would you go back with me to the passage we read at the very beginning of today's message, Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 71. In these 18 verses, I just want to start with verse 59. Verse 59, would you help me read this in a loud voice? One, two, three, it says, About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? 
We heard it from his own lips. And it's based on this testimony that Jesus would end up going to the cross. Claiming to be the son of God, they didn't believe him. They crucified him. And I want you to understand this. Notice this. In this passage of 18 verses, you're going to find that if you look at it carefully, the first nine verses are Peter denying Jesus. The first nine verses are Peter's failure. The last nine verses is Jesus paying for Peter's failure. The last nine verses is Jesus paying for our failures by going on his way to the cross. And what touches me about that is that even as Peter is failing Jesus, not just once, not just twice, but three times within an hour, Jesus in that same moment is making a way for Peter. Jesus in that same moment is showing that though we fail all the time, God's love for us never fails. Jesus would go to the cross to pay for Peter's sin. He would go to the cross to pay for our sins, to show us that God's love for us is not based on our performance. God's love is based on who he is, and the Bible says God is love, and that means his love for you is an unconditional love. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place right now. Give God some praise for his amazing love for you and me. In fact, Romans 5, 8 says it this way. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had failed to meet God's requirements, when we had failed to meet God's standards, when we had failed to meet God's expectations, that didn't stop God from loving you and me. God, that didn't God stop God from caring about you and me. Christ died for us even when we had completely failed him. And what does it tell you and me? It tells you this, is that your worth is not determined by your failures or your accomplishments. Your worth is not determined by your performance. You are loved unconditionally by God. Amen. And because you're loved unconditionally by God, you don't have to fear failure. Because whether you succeed or fail, whether you try and it doesn't go the way you want, or you try and it goes perfectly the way you want, that doesn't change God's love for you. Don't fear failure. You know, later on, after Jesus rose again, Jesus would appear to Peter by a beach. Because Peter had internalized his failure. He'd seen how he denied Jesus three times. He'd gone off. He'd gone back on his word. He'd, he, he, he'd not, he, he broke his promise. And so he's like, you know what? I'm a failure. And so he decides instead of being a, a, a preacher, instead of you know, talking about Jesus, he's just going to go back to his old job. He's going to go back to fishing. And there he's on the boat, and he's fishing once again for the first time in who knows how long. And Jesus appears on the shore, and he calls out to Peter and some other disciples who are with him. He says, hey, guys. Come have breakfast. Peter, Peter's, he, he, he hears Jesus. He gets out of the boat. He swims across. I don't know why he swam. He had his boat, but he, he swims to shore. He, he gets to the shore, and there when he sees Jesus, he sees Jesus by a fire. And I can tell you this. The moment that Peter saw the fire, I can pretty much guarantee you it reminded him of his failure. It reminded him of that moment when he denied Jesus three times. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was not rubbing Peter's failure in his face but he was taking Peter back to that moment when he failed to show him a grace that he desperately needed. Is that Peter would sit there by the fire thinking about his failure and all of a sudden as they're having breakfast that Jesus made for them, Jesus speaks to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yeah, I do. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I do. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know I do. Three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love him? And it's not because Jesus is hard of hearing. It's because for every failure that Peter experienced at that fire last time, Jesus is restoring Peter. Jesus is saying, there's new grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. 
There's a new blessing on your life. There's a new beginning for you. You don't have to live in the past and be haunted by your failure anymore. Instead, even at the place of your failure, I'm going to commission you to be a blessing more than you've ever been before. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place right now. That's what he did for Peter. That's what he does for you and for me. What's the lesson here? The lesson is that God's grace is always greater than our biggest failures. For every single failure in your life, whether it's in your relationships or it's in something like your career or your business or whatever it is that haunts you today, there is grace that God makes available. In fact, he's going to use your, that failure. He's going to use that disappointment. He's going to use that defeat. He's going to use that heartbreak. He's going to use it for a purpose greater than you could possibly imagine because failure is your friend. See, don't be afraid of failure, but treat failure as your friend. Since failure is your friend, how should we treat failure specifically? Specifically, let me end with three or four ways you can treat failure. Since failure is your friend, don't fear failure, but face failure. Don't fear failure, but face failure. In other words, don't live avoiding failure like the plague. Don't be someone who's always afraid of failure, never saying yes to anything because you're afraid to fail. Don't live that way. God's love for you is not based on whether you fail or succeed in that moment. God's love for you is already decided, and so don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to take a risk because the person who never risked anything never did anything, so don't fear failure, face failure. Amen. Number two, don't evade failure, embrace failure. In other words, don't deny your failures or pretend that you haven't failed. Own them. Learn every lesson you can from them. By doing so, you minimize the chances of that failure happening again. Don't evade failures by blaming other people and never taking responsibility. To the extent that it is your responsibility, take ownership of it. Embrace the failure and say, it's my bad. I apologize. Would you forgive me? Don't evade failure. Embrace failure. Number three, don't let failure define you, you redefine failure. Amen. What does that mean? See, when we experience failure, very often we will internalize it and go, because this failed, I failed. Because this failed, I'm a failure. Because I'm a failure, I'm worthless. Because I'm worthless, I'm useless. And we go through this vicious cycle of internalizing failure. And I'm here to tell you this. Instead of so quickly calling yourself a failure, instead of so quickly calling something a failure, learn to redefine failure in a healthier way. Failure is not trying and missing the mark. Failure is not trying at all. Failure is not missing first place. Failure is not giving your best. Failure is not, never, is, is not making a mistake. Failure is not learning from your mistake. Failure is not falling. Failure is falling and deciding never to get up after you fall. Failure is not losing the game. Failure is not leaving everything you have on the court before the game is done. Failure is not not having the looks not having the talents, not having the opportunities that other people have. See, failure is not appreciating what you already have. Amen. See, how much unnecessary frustration, how much unnecessary anxiety, how much unnecessary fear we go through and put ourselves through because we have this wrong definition of failure. But when we redefine failure to mean something different from what you fear, when you redefine failure in a healthier way, you can try without being so afraid anymore. Do you know what God's definition for success is? God's definition for success is not that you never fail. It's that you do the best you can with what you have. And even when you stumble and fall, you'll have the strength to get up again because God is with you. Amen? Amen? Some of you, you need to redefine failure, not just for yourself, but even for your kids because they're watching 
to see your definition for failure and success, and they're going to be so impacted by it more than you possibly know. And so if you would have a healthy definition for failure, if you would learn to treat failure not as an enemy, but as a friend to help you onto success, man, the generations after you are going to be so very blessed. If you believe that, say amen. Lastly, if you want to treat failure as your friend, don't give up, but get up and move forward. Maybe you've experienced a very bad failure. Maybe someone hurt you or maybe you hurt someone and you've never really gotten over it. Maybe you failed at an attempt at a dream and you still are recovering from that failure. Maybe something happened in your life which makes you feel like you're a failure. I'm here to tell you, don't give up. Just get up and move forward because with Jesus Christ, the best is always yet to come. With Jesus Christ, every failure is not a stop sign, it's a stepping stone for your destiny. Every failure is just one more chance to learn to grow. Every failure is one more opportunity to learn humility. Every failure is just more room that you can give God to work in your life and do what you could never do on your own. And so don't fear failure. Don't evade failure. Don't, you know, don't, don't let failure define you. Don't give up. Instead, face your failure. Embrace your failure. Redefine failure. And get up and move forward knowing that with Jesus Christ, there is no failure that's big than his love. There's no failure that's bigger than his grace. And because of Jesus, you can always say, the best is yet to come. Oh, come on. Give God a big hand, a big shout in this place together right now. Amen. Turn your begin behind him and say, don't give up. Don't give up. Some in this place, you might feel like you, 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 you might feel like throwing in the towel this past week. Some of you this past week, you've been looking at the way you've been handling certain situations in your life and you feel like such a failure. I'm here to tell you this. You are not a failure. You are not a failure. You are loved by God. You are called by God. And that failure happened in your life not by accident, not randomly, but for a purpose so you could learn and grow so that you could have a story to tell that you could never write yourself. And so with that in mind, can we stand to our feet as we respond to God? Can we give Jesus Christ, the one who takes our failures and makes something beautiful out of them, would you would we give him a big hand, a big shout in this place this morning? I said, would you give God a big hand, a big shout in this place this morning? Let's respond to God as we stand and sing and lead you in prayer after that. Close. I just want to give you an opportunity where you can respond to God this morning. Today, we've been learning about failure, how to deal with it, how it's not about whether or not you experience failure, it's about how you respond to it. And today in this place, uh, I think we can all acknowledge that when it comes to God and his standards, all of us have failed. All of us have failed in some kind of way. None of us ever does it perfectly. We all need a savior. And the great thing about Jesus is that when we needed a savior, Jesus came to be that savior. He, sent, he, he, he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose again to give us life. And if you're here and you realize you need forgiveness for your failures, forgiveness for your sins, and you want that, that forgiveness today, I'm going to invite you just to respond to God by lifting up your hand right now. Don't worry about what your neighbor's doing. You just lift your hand to God right now. And we're just going to invite Jesus to come and to help you receive that forgiveness. A forgiveness that you couldn't earn by your own merit or performance. A forgiveness that he paid for by his precious blood on the cross. If that's you and you realize you need his forgiveness today and you want to invite him into your life, why don't you pray this prayer as you lift your hand to God. You can say, dear Jesus, dear Jesus thank, you so much thank you so much for your unconditional love for, unconditional love for, me. for me. You've seen all my failures. All, my failures. all of the ways that I've fallen short, but you still love me. You died on the cross to pay for my sins. You rose again to give me hope. 
So right now, I open up my heart. Say, dear Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I receive your forgiveness. And I thank you that because of you, I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. And the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you give God a big hand?